evening, everyone, and welcome. Great to see you all here. Welcome to our panel discussion on world religions through their scriptures. This has been an amazing and wild ride for all of us. Um, we variously call our learning curve as perpendicular. Uh, it's been a really interesting experience. Tonight, though, instead of talk about the experience, we're going to actually try to give you a little bit of a taste for what the course actually entails. And that is our intention, and we hope that that will work out well with all the technological issues, et cetera. Um, before I start, I just want to say uh, we owe so much, uh, we owe a great debt of gratitude to so many people behind the scenes on this course. Um, some of them are here. Rachel, Ryan from the HX team, uh, Zach Davis, who's not with us tonight, who's in Utah, who's the lead producer. Several of our graduate students, if you all who have been involved in the course could just stand up, just stand up um, behind the scenes who worked on the course, uh, many of whom are not here. Yes, let me say thank you. Uh, so our presentation tonight is going to be um, very much due to the hard work behind the scenes of these wonderful people. So I'm Diane Moore. I'm a senior lecturer here and the director of the Religious Literacy Project. And um, I think I'm the chief cat herder, I think, in this uh, endeavor. I'm so excited about what we have been able to achieve. And today is our launch day for the six-month course that has six different modules, one month each. I'm gonna say a little bit about the background, but not much. You can read a lot about the course. We've been really fortunate. Our communications team at Harvard Divinity has done a phenomenal job of helping to get the word out about the course. But I do wanna say a couple things about what unites this project. First of all, this is the last of many different projects here at Harvard Divinity School. It started with Christer Stendhal, actually, in 1972, uh, when he had the vision to try to create an opportunity beyond the doctoral track to match our professional training for religious leaders through our MDiv program, but to also through our MTS program have another opportunity besides the doctoral track for people studying uh, religion, the, study, the religious studies approach to religion. And so it was his idea to then start the program in religions, studies, and education, which was a longstanding secondary ed program that was a mini ed school program here at the Divinity School that was sadly um, uh, suspended in 2008 because of the financial crisis, but it had a long run, almost a little over 35 years. So the Religious Literacy Project is a successor to that program, and really what it, it is doing is helping to create an opportunity for us to garner the tremendous resources we have here in the world's religious traditions with our remarkable faculty to help translate what does it mean to promote and enhance the public understanding of religion. And this project is really rooted in that vision and again, the latest iteration of that long history. So we have two, we have three goals, three primary goals for this course. The first is just to introduce people to this, the rich traditions uh, that we uh, have the privilege of living in as scholars of religious studies. But the second two are actually probably most prior, we prioritize them. The second is to give people language and tools to understand religion. The, we use the language of religious literacy, it's language I use, we've got the religious literacy project here at Harvard. Uh, we know, all of us in this room know too well 
the consequences of a lack of understanding about religion. We read it in the paper every day. And none of us here on the panel assume that a better understanding of religion will cure all the world's ills. But we do deeply believe that a better understanding of religion can minimize some of the conflicts that surround religion today. And so we're eager to give people language and tools. In the words of Ted Sizer, a wonderful educator, a former dean of the Harvard um, Graduate School of Education, the best way to think about education is to think less is more. So we are not trying to give a comprehensive introduction to the world's religious traditions, five of the world's religious traditions. I want to be really clear about that. What we're trying to do is give people language and tools to think about religion in some new and creative and constructive ways through illustrations. So that's really the overarching theme in the relationship to how we understand our work and the content. And so again, introducing people to great content, but introducing people to a way to think about religion. And then the third is to provide an opportunity for people from around the world, from diverse backgrounds, religious backgrounds, um, worldview backgrounds, geographic regions, ages, to interact in a constructive way about topics that so often divide us. So our shared commitment in this course is to really maximize the opportunity for people to engage with each other through the literature that we're going to be sharing through our, uh, through our modules. So this is slightly unusual for edX courses. Um, many have attempted to increase the discussion-based dimensions of this, and our colleague Laura Nasrallah, who was our pioneer at this here at the Divinity School, was an early pioneer in helping to move away from the talking heads expert lecture-based uh, online courses to a more interactive opportunity. And we are um, also trying to continue with that within that vein. So that's been a both a wonderful pedagogical challenge, um, but also a really rich creative opportunity to think, how do you minimize our delivery of content, but invite students to engage with all kinds of different content with, uh, through exercises, activities, and with each other? So I wanted to say that that other dimension of the opportunity for people to talk with one another is really important and, a really, uh, and we're very excited about it. And so, and this is a bit of an experiment and we'll see how it goes, but all of us through all the modules have really maximized on that dimension of what this opportunity can provide. So briefly, I'm gonna just show you, I wanted to show you the platform because I, so I'm gonna date myself here with a, with a quick story. When I was a graduate student here in the master's program several years ago, I ran into a friend of mine in Harvard Square who at the time was working on word processing. Now, I feel like I'm a dinosaur when I say this, but word processing, and she was trying to explain to me what word processing was. And I was still working on my Master's of Divinity senior thesis on my electric typewriter, which I was very impressed with myself to have. And she, I could not understand what a word processing was. I just could not get my head around it. This is what we're experiencing. Lots of people still don't really understand what is a MOOC. What does it actually entail? How do you do a MOOC? Um, so I wanted to show you just briefly, this is the platform for the MOOC. Uh, if you come into day one, what you would see if you're a student, you'll see the days here listed all on the, on the left-hand side, and that's the entire course. But the course all throughout the next six months, all of our courses are going to uh, be um, rolled out, if you will, one day at a time on Tuesdays and Thursdays throughout the uh, six-month period. So we're starting today. This is the first day of the uh, religious literacy module, and this is what students will see, just the first day. 
And the way to go through the course, and I'm going to show you just a few of the components, you'll see here on the horizontal line at the top, these are all the different units that are happening in this first day. This is just the introduction here, and students will hopefully read the introduction and then come here to move through the rest of the course. There are these kinds of videos, uh, short videos, two and three minutes long for each of us. We, sometimes we've got two, sometimes three in a given course to help orient students and move them through. Um, so there, there's this one, then I've got an introduction, inviting students to introduce themselves. You see here, and then through these discussion boards that students will participate in, we've got a twi Twitter feed here that's ongoing for students to participate in. Pardon? These are real. Yep. Yeah. I know. It's the word processing moment, Shia. I know. <laughs> Believe me, I get it. All right. So, so then there's opportunities to, to each of us have our own intro video that we've done. The Harvard X team has done remarkable work in terms of the quality of what we're being able to represent here. Um, I think several of you saw this misunderstandings video, this animation representing the fundamental misunderstandings of religion that, um, again, part of the Harvard X team has helped us create. I'm not going to go through this now um, because I want to make sure to seed my, use, I'm going to finish in my 10 minutes here. But I want to show you then that we have then these other options. So then there are readings, and relatively short readings, by the way. And then there are discussion options and discussion prompts after many of the readings. There are uh, video options. This is a contemporary. I, the, the news is, was hot on this, so I picked it up. Um, this debate about whether Donald Trump's a Christian I thought was really interesting and wanted to use it. So then we have um, opportunities, too, to bring in an incredible array of uh, resources from the web that's out there. So we're using... A front, this is a pieces of a frontline video, for example. So the idea is that we're using little snippets to represent the ideas we're trying to help uh, students be introduced to and then give them lots of different options to, to, uh, to engage that, uh, those experiences. So this is a first day. There's a lot of things in this first day. Not all of them will have this many. But in the end, there's also what we're calling uh, for each day a learning summary where we're asking students, what did you learn? Uh, post those in the discussion board. So we'll learn a lot about what we're hoping to say, what we're hoping they'll learn, and then what they actually learn. We're going to learn a lot about that. And then what we're calling the self-report for students who choose to take the course uh, not as an audit for free, but for, um, for a certificate to, um, to earn a, certificate, a formal certificate of completion. So with that, I want to show you just one other Everyone on the, on the panel tonight will be sharing with you uh, an example of something they're excited about in their course. Um, and so I basically gave over my excitement about this to give you this intro, except I have one thing I wanted to show you, and I need someone to help me get out of here. Uh, Mike, thanks. Um, this is a video that, again, the Harvard X team put together with the help of incredible work in the behind the scenes with graduate students. This is a video to help capture fundamental assertions we're trying to make through the course. Religions are internally diverse. They evolve and change, and religions are embedded in all dimensions of human experience. And religions are complicated things, powerful and complicated things. So this is a video, short video, to just to try to represent this.
So I found this entire project overwhelming from the beginning, and Diane has been the one who has pressed less is more on me uh, from the beginning, and I always think more is more, um, uh, but at some point I'll just simply have to stop. So what I want to do um, is to give you a uh, sense first of uh, the what I'm trying to do across the course, and then to sort of focus in on one part of one day, one exercise that we're looking at. So, um, so I start off with talking about you know why we should be motivated to do this, the kind of impact, enormous impact, um, I think that um, religions have on our complex and changing world, on group identity, on art and architecture, understanding current events controversies over ethical and moral issues, violence and justice, and more. So scriptures play an important role in how adherents address such matters. Studying Christian scriptures, I think, helps understand better the impact of Christianity on these and other issues. But Christians, however, are not the same everywhere. And although Christianity is a global religion, people live and practice their traditions locally. In its long history, Christianity has shaped and been shaped by many cultures and political contexts. Its scriptures have been translated into hundreds of languages. Everywhere Christians live and interact with peoples of other faiths and with people who have no formal religious tradition. The long history of Christianity, of Christian scriptures, I should say, has left a deep and complex legacy in many parts of the world. And we want to address some of that complexity uh, in the course. So the aim of my month-long module is to gain familiarity with the contents and with some of the ways of interpreting scriptures. So here's, here's the run-through. Um, we start by examining all kinds of Bibles, from ancient papyrus to modern print versions, uh, if you take this part of the section of the class, you will read some of the most well-known stories and teachings in the Christian Bible. The course will introduce you to how these stories order time, for example, the weekly calendar, the liturgical calendar, and so on and so forth, how they order place. Um, we're going to take you on pilgrimages to three continents. We will read stories and talk about how Christian scriptures address fundamental existential questions, such as suffering and persecution, how they portray the earliest groups, for example, um, how you join, you know, what does worship look like, um, how is authority structured and contested. Um, we're going to uh, talk about uh, how uh, Christians uh, talk about non-Christians and how they relate to them. We're going to ask about the contested and varied uses of scripture in multiple time periods and different geographical contexts. In the ancient Roman world where Christianity began, in its spread through European and American colonialism, and in the diverse forms it takes in various locations around the globe. We will see how religion is embedded in local cultures and how those cultures shape Christian beliefs and practices. We're going to pay attention to how change over time takes place, looking, for example, at the impact of modern science and history, or at shifting attitudes towards sexuality, marriage, and the roles of women. And in all of this, I want to highlight the diversity, richness, and complexity of Christian um, scriptures and interpretations. So I think you see already 
Um, I'm trying to do more than maybe less, okay? Um, so we're going to try to do all of that, okay? Sort of in, in our eight-day segments rolling on over four weeks, go, okay? Sarah, my, my helpmate, okay, is smiling, okay? So I want to fast forward to day seven. You have to imagine that you've been around the globe, you've done a lot of things, you've learned a lot of stuff, okay? And now, finally, you may think we're getting to types of early Christian interpretations. Um, Christians interpreted their scriptures various kinds of ways, many different ways. Um, some read them as the key to understanding God's plan for human salvation, stretching from the creation of the universe to its final destruction and recreation. And indeed, this is the shape of the Bible itself. It starts with Genesis and it ends with the destruction and the end of the world and recreation. Eventually, the Bible is going to be ordered to tell this story from creation to Genesis and Genesis to Revelations. Christians also read scriptures allegorically um, as indications of timeless truth. Um, much of the Jewish Bible was read as prophecy of the coming of Jesus, and indeed the Bible came to be seen itself as a prophetic book, not only interpreting the deeper meaning of the past and predicting the future, uh, but illuminating present events. So in other cases, biblical stories and teachings were elaborated uh, expanding narratives to fill in gaps and to speak to the theological and social issues of their own times. The literal and the grammatical sense of scriptures, scriptures was often important, but it always also had spiritual meaning. So what we do day one, after this little introduction, okay, is start looking at these. Um, and so I want to um, emphasize, uh, we're going to look at, in the course, at types of biblical interpretation that were prominent uh, in the early church in the first few centuries. But even as new modes of interpretation appear at various times and places in the history of Christianity, those found among early Christians remain alive, often in invigorated and locally inflected forms, not only in the West, but around the globe. So, um, what, what this course would do next is to give you examples of each of these types of scripture, asking you to look at them, to read, to annotate, to interpret, to discuss, um, to go after these. So I give you examples of uh, Christian epic, of allegory. We look at the parable of the seeds, for those of you who know, where Jesus tells a parable and then interprets it allegorically. Uh, we look at typology, um, again, for those of you who know, but if you don't, you will learn, okay, um, about the letter to the Romans, where Paul sees uh, uh, Adam as a type of Christ, this kind of typological interpretation. We're going to look at the fulfillment of prophecy, especially the way that Jesus fulfills prophecies, uh, well, the way that the, the Jewish Hebrew scriptures are read as interpretations of uh, fulfillment by Jesus. We're going to look at revelations and how the Bible itself teaches um, people to read current events as fulfillment of prophecy. Um, and we're going to look at an elaboration of stories. I picked one of my favorites, which is um, the infancy gospel of James. You know, um, all you wanted to know about Jesus when he was a little boy, but never heard, okay? Um, so these gaps and things that are filled in. Um, and finally, to talk about um, one particular uh, theologian, Origen, who understood the multiple layers of scripture, its grammatical meaning, its historical meaning, 
its spiritual or universal meaning, and its uh, contemporary application uh, to current events. So having done all of that, okay, um, you now know all about this, and it would have been really, really fun, okay, because you would have had all of these great readings that you hadn't seen before yet in the course, and a chance to talk to people all over the globe about them, um, and of course we picked really interesting examples, right, Clara? Yes, yes we did, we absolutely did. Okay, now we're fast forwarding ahead, okay, and we're talking about, okay, these are sort of old traditional ways of doing it, okay? But all around the globe, other kinds of things have, uh, uh, have appeared, and sadly, uh, we're not a totalizing course, so you don't get them all, okay? So what we do is we sort of spin in on one region of the globe, the modern West. And I want to assure you that at other parts of the course, we're going to be spinning in on Ethiopia. We're going to be spinning in on Mexico. We're going to be uh, in other places. But for this example, um, the modern West. And so here, you having already studied colonial expansion and its impact in various places, okay, um, are going to look at what happened in Northern Europe um, undergoing a, ser a wide series of wide-ranging social and intellectual challenges. Um, biblical theology and interpretation in the West was profoundly affected by the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason and its aftermath. The rise of modern scientific investigation brought to the fore a paradigm shift, and by that I mean scientific method introduced change in a fundamental approach and underlying assumptions about human beings, how human beings can know the world. Um, and then we elaborate on that and what that means and so on and so forth. Um, but this has this impact then on how the Bible is interpreted. Um, the second kind of major way that this had an impact is the writing of history. Um, science's high valuation of objective evidence is the basis for claims about truth and knowledge impacted the writing of history and the way history um, became uh, a, a matter in historicist mode of what really happened. Okay, so how do we literally see this? Okay, look on the screen if you haven't already. Okay, so I'm arguing that one of the prominent modes of interpreting Christian scripture has been through artistic representation. Um, and it's possible to literally see the effects of a different way of viewing the Bible. So I'm following a scholar named Stephen Prickett here, and he points out the way that medieval art tended to eliminate time and space. So if you look at this object, and this would be, uh, if you were in the course, we'd just give it to you, okay? And I would give you the stories to read, the biblical stories that go with each part of, of this image, okay? But I'm going to tell you right now, okay? So it, that's unfun, but the course will be more fun, okay? Um, so flattening history into a simultaneous panorama. So for example, if you look at this, what you see in the in the um, main panel is uh, the image of uh, Mary and the baby Jesus, okay? Um, but around this figure, this is, by the way, a, um, a 14th century um, triptych from Spain, okay? And I have two minutes left, okay? So we'll wing through these, okay? So flatten, so what you see is you see the whole impact of the incarnation of Jesus in this panel. So it's surrounded by uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, 
the Annunciation to Mary, where she's told that she will be having, um, she as a virgin will be having this baby, uh, presenting Jesus in the temple, and the coronation of Mary in heaven, which is something not in scriptures, okay? But what I want you to see is precisely how this, it, it, how, how flat this is, okay? And how it, it incorporates all these different scenes in one visual image, okay? And there's a lot more going on uh, in this um, image that you will see when you take the course. So, look at this image of the Annunciation um, by John Collier, okay? What's changed? So you're going to be asked to take a look at this. Um, this is the same image of the angel coming to the Virgin Mary to announce that she's going to have a child, okay? There's a lot of things you might notice about this, but the point that I wanted to make in my um, 30 seconds, my zero time left, okay, is that it has come to be a single scene in a time, in a place, okay? In this case, it happens to be something like the 50s, okay? You can tell when. Um, notice the plant is in a pot. Um, you know, you can see the, the breeze coming through. You can see the sun shining down. So this addition of perspective, of artistic perspective, means that instead of looking from nowhere and looking at simultaneously and seeing the whole of the story, it has been turned into a particular time and place. Okay? And this is, in some ways, what historical criticism, historical writing of the Bible does, is it turns things into a linear story. So things become points on a linear time frame. Um, and so no longer are we looking at the whole meaning together, but we're seeing uh, the linear time frame as such. And then if we go on, we can see how um, this can be done in different um, kinds of ways. You'll notice um, uh, this is a, a Japanese image, um, black and white, and so on and so forth. And from these, then we go on to discuss, um, notice how, uh, the imagination is not yet um, quite the scientific imagination. So the course goes on, and it talks about the rise of historical criticism, about dating and writing the history of the Bible and questions about biblical accuracy. Then we get into the pushback against this in terms of the rise of fundamentalism. Um, we see it, we take a little tour of the Creation Science Museum out there in middle America, okay, and so forth. Okay, thank you. <laughs> That screen that came up before with Diane Moore where it said that page and Eric heard, please try again later, that was my screen. <laughs> and so what I have to say is uh, some error occurred, which has to do with me, and this thing about please try again later, that has to do with me as well. But part of what's happening, I would say also, is that this course has probably been one of the most, not one of, the most challenging course I've ever tried to imagine how to teach. It's not always, I often find myself that I want to teach introductory courses because it's at that level that I think some of the most fundamental intellectual decisions come to f bear on us and we have to face them without hiding behind facts and other things that we think we know. But this course is beyond that of being an introductory course in the sense of a different kind of medium and also the, a different kind of uh, classroom and who's in the classroom is far more complicated. So one of the things that I have been thought a lot about is remembering a radio interview I heard with a very great American Buddhologist, Donald Lopez, 
about his book, Prisoners of Shangri-La, and it was being reacted to by a Tibetan Buddhist, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist physician. And so the, the interviewer started off by asking Donald Lopez, uh, what is, uh, Professor Lopez, what is the essence of Buddhism? And he basically gave what Diane Moore just gave as the rationale of this course. As a historian, I know there's no essence of Buddhism. It's internally diverse. It's changing and evolving. It's embedded in, uh, in different kinds of uh, cultural di dimensions. And he went on like that. Then turned to the Tibetan and said to you know, Dr. So-and-so, what is the essence of Buddhism? And the physician said, compassion. And I could hear like the bell go off. Round one goes to that guy. Uh, <laughs> So this is part of the audience, that there's people th uh, that want to hear what is the essence of Buddhism. And then there's others who want to know about how it's internally diverse. What's complicated, however, is that in a class like this, what might work very well for Karen in terms of showing the diversity as a way of opening up possibilities in Christianity in an audience where people are, are unfamiliar with much of the Buddhist world, that showing of diversity isn't a way of making you open up to different possibilities. It's just confirming it's one damn thing after another, and it makes no sense. And so one of the things then you have to have is a different kind of challenge of what to do about that. I'm aware that in the audience will be you know, people who are, consider themselves Buddhists of an infinite variety of things, and also people who are academic. There will also be a lot of identity politics. Those who are following the news coming out of uh, JNU University in Delhi know that there is a petition circulating that has uh, uh, about, that already has more than 12,000 people who have signed it. Uh, basically, it's not directed against me, but it is directed against people teaching at Ivy League universities. I think I'm what one, uh, that not to be allowed to talk about Buddhist Indian scriptures. They, sh they should not be allowed to do that. And that's part of the reality of it that you could say is a different kind of audience that's there. Another thing, those people who want to say, what's the essence of Buddhism? They may say Buddhism is about meditation. Buddhism doesn't have scriptures in the way that Islam and and so to say, oh, it does have scriptures, is to confirm I shouldn't be allowed to teach about it, uh, that I am just trying to some other kind of inf you know, secret uh, neo-colonialism that's going on. The other is that I have a challenge for myself in this class is not only to teach people, to give them language and tools for the, uh, how to think about religion, I want to teach them how to read Buddhist scriptures without expecting that they would be become Buddhist, but to just say, oh, these are things that you shouldn't deny yourself to. Less is more is a big problem for me, because Buddhism just has more. Uh, it has many canons, so it doesn't have one canon of scriptures like Islam or Christianity has. It has a whole variety of them in different parts of the Buddhist world that none of, no one accepts each, each other's, and there's no commonality between them. And we could say there in some sense, some of them are really quite big. They're all definitely bigger than the Quran and the Bible. So the smallest, 40 volumes. We get up to more than 3,000 volumes, 4,000 volumes. I'm not going to go through a list of all the titles of the text. Another big problem. Buddhism doesn't have a closed canon. 
So unlike uh, Islam or Christianity where it's done, an interpretation can do certain things. You can add, well, the Quakers, it's not done, uh, but the Bible is basically on the shelf. Buddhists don't have that. And so they, by the time the class is done, there'll be a few more scriptures to get in. <laughs> Finally, it also has, like Christianity, perhaps like Islam, a dual canon. It accepts one canon and then another canon that comments on the earlier one and changes it in front of you. How to teach people about the complexities of handling something that is many canons, big canons, an open canon, and dual canons in eight sessions, and then also to teach other kinds of things is a big challenge. Another problem for me, a welcome one though, is that there's something that you can feel the effect of comparison in thinking about what to present. So part of the course is scriptures and other scriptures in other religions. And so part of what you start to have is scriptures are texts. Scriptures are books. Buddhism, it's not so clear that they are. Uh, part of the problem is also to teach people that, that you know, Buddhists are reading their own scriptures in the light of other scriptures. And what you have then is how do we deal with inconsistencies? Not how do we open things up? But the biggest one that I want to teach people is that the Buddhist scriptures are part of something that people take refuge in. And that this is a fundamental religious act that you come to the texts having turned to them as a refugee. And so basically then to say, oh, I'm coming to this not as a choice, but because I have no other choice. And in that, to just say, oh, how is it that to convey that kind of happiness that, oh, here is something that I didn't know could ever be mine. Let me come back to the last thing that I would say, oh, a big goal for me. People, if they think about Buddhism, they'll say, oh, it has something to do with meditation. That's what Buddhists do, mindfulness and all the rest. It will be easy to show that what Buddhists do as well has a lot to do with chanting. And scriptures are constantly being chanted, sung, and this is part of their presence in the world. And the YouTube videos will show constantly they're being chanted. But what I want to show is that Buddhists also read. And the question is about how to read. So the last point I want to make is an anecdote that I hold up for myself of, how are you going to do this? It's of a, we can say in a particular moment of Zen abbots, Zen monastic teachers, having an intense in encounter with the uh, Christian Bible in the 1930s. There was some movement, they wanted to learn something from it. Not about Christianity, but learn something from it. And one abbot said to his head, head monk, he said, I've heard about the Bible, I've never seen it, can you get me a copy? So the monk came in with a copy of the Bible and the, uh, the abbot looked at it and he said, that's a big book. And he says, read a little bit from, me, from it for me. And the man opened up something from the Beatitudes and just started to read through the Beatitudes, which those of you who have read the Beatitudes, hard stuff. But the abbot, when he said, well, at the end he said, I don't know much about whoever put that book together, but what I do know is whoever said that stuff was enlightened. So in that, to just say, is it possible to say to people, you don't only want to read about Buddhist scriptures to learn about Buddhists, 
but that you want to learn about it, to learn about yourself, in which there's something in this, and how to have exercises where you say, oh, can you practice a, a, a way of reading scriptures of other people, in which they say, this is something for me as well, because I live in the 21st century. Right. Um, I'm going to say a little bit about uh, my module on Islam. Uh, it's uh, and and talking really about the Quran. Uh, it's from my perspective, it's a huge challenge uh, to deal with this topic on the um, internet. Uh, as you can imagine, there are going to be all kinds of people uh, uh, looking at this module. There are going to be Islamophobes who are going to be out there who've declared, who've compared the Quran to Hitler's Mein Kampf. It's a text of terrorism and so on. Uh, on the other hand, you're going to have Muslims of various denominations, various perspectives, looking at what am I going to be saying about the Quran, and some things they're going to agree with, and some things they're going to disagree with, and they're going to be very vocal about it. Um, so it's going to be, my sense is, it's going to be a controversial module uh, based on the topic, just the topic itself, the Quran, but also, I think, the religion. Because, um, as you can see, the... Um, um, uh, you know, the, the rise of Islamophobia, the rise of anti-Muslim prejudice, and so on. And it's interesting how the Muslim has become the other, not only in the United States, but in Europe, and so on, but even in places like India, where you have a, a current regime that is, in fact, promoting this otherness of, uh, of, uh, of Muslims and also Christians, and so on. So to counter all of this, some of the things I'm doing is deconstructing notions. So for instance, uh, one notion that I'm going to try to deconstruct is to move away from thinking about the Quran just as a book, as a scripture, as something that's between two covers. Because that in, in myself is that it's one manifestation, but however, it is a text to be experienced, to be performed. And this is how the text originated. So uh, during, the, during the seventh century, during the time of the Prophet Muhammad, there was no book. People experienced the text. And the greatest rivals to the Prophet Muhammad were poets, who also composed poetry, but who were seen as inspired by jinns. And here comes uh, uh, Muhammad with his message and that's promoting monotheism it says he's inspired by God and that part of the truth of what he was preaching is embedded in the aesthetics of the text and the aesthetics of the text and the beauty of the text is in fact a proof of its divine origin, its sacredness. And we have lots of examples of people who actually get moved by the recitation of the text, even if they don't understand the Arabic. We have examples in the past, in the present, and so on. So that's one of the ways. And I just want to give you a feel for that by playing you a, a short Quran clip that, uh, and I have the, uh, 
I know the translation and transliteration is a, it's on there, but it's, um, I know the script is very small, but if I blow the screen up, then you won't be able to see anything. But I'm just going to play this so you get a sense of what this sounds like. So here you see the Quran being performed literally in a concert. And it's part of the aesthetic, so it's one of the different contexts in which you are going to encounter the Quran. It's not the book. So you hear it, it's, uh, it's part of, it's the middle of, it's the center of a soundscape. Uh, and the Quran is part of it, but then it also, uh, connected with the soundscape is the world of poets and poetry. And in fact, in many uh, Islamic traditions around the world, uh, many uh, uh, poetic traditions are seen as, in fact, um, commentaries on Quranic scripture. So let me give you an example. Uh, uh, all of you are familiar with uh, Rumi, the great mystic. His great epic, the Masnavi, uh, which tells, uh, which is really a collection of stories and anecdotes and so on, has been dubbed, in fact, the Quran in Persian. And it's a recited text. And the idea is that through this poetic commentary in Persian, it is providing for Persian speakers access into the inner meanings of the Quran, which is in Arabic. So this idea of a vernacular text trying to actually provide access to not the external meaning, but the inner meaning, the spiritual meaning. So this gets into this idea that the texts are seen as, in fact, many diff having many different types of uh, levels and levels of meaning. And there's this, uh, um, we look at, of course, different Quran commentaries, but this idea that the Quran is a text that has, uh, I think as one, uh, one commentator compared, is a bride with many different veils. And so you can talk about the Quran as a book of love, a conversation between God, the beloved, and the listener who's the lover. And that's certainly certain, certain ways in which you can talk about the Quran as a legal tone. You can talk about the Quran uh, in terms of uh, you know, paradigms and role models and so on. So there are many discourses around the Quran. Um, much of what Karen and Charlie, you know, have already talked about, I try to fit that into my course too. But I'm trying to, trying to again to go less because I am very conscious of the fact that there are I'm dealing with major stereotypes, and sometimes you know trying to shatter those becomes really a part of the course. And one way in which I'm, uh, that I'm also doing it by actually taking Quranic text and Quranic vocabulary, um, one way is actually even taking the way in which the Quran uses the term Islam, Islam and Muslim. The term Islam in the Quran in its literal form means he who is submitted to God or a person who is submitted to God and Islam is the act of submission to God. 
And what that does, right there, it shatters the idea that Islam is the name of a religion and Muslim is one who follows that religion because the Quran doesn't have that conception at all. And so it calls Abraham Muslim, it calls Jesus Muslim, it calls Moses Muslim. So this category of Muslim is very broad and open and fluid. And how does this evolve and change to become the ideology that ideological formations that we know. So there is this tension in the text between, I think, a very pluralistic definition, a, a pluralistic ethos, and then more exclusivist interpretations of the text that evolve over time. So those are, I think, some of the issues that I'm, I'm going to be dealing with. But I think there are a lot of uh, this, this idea of doing ex experience sound and also connected with the Quran is the art of calligraphy. So there's a whole section on calligraphic and the sacred word as design and looking at that. So we're really engaging with, uh, I would say, the artistic dimensions, the sonic, the visual, and the literary. Thank you. Hello, good evening. My name is Nilima Shuklapat, and I'm not regular Harvard faculty, so I have to introduce myself. I teach at Wellesley College, but uh, I actually, um, I got my PhD here, and this is the first room in which I attended my first lecture, so this is very special. Uh, so uh, I'll be teaching the Hinduism section uh, for this course, and some of the challenges that my wonderful teaching assistant, Jason, and I faced was what to select. Because Hinduism, unlike any of the traditions that uh, in, in this group, is um, it has no singular text like Buddhism. Uh, Professor Hellesi talked about it. But it also doesn't have a singular figure in whom the religious authority as a founder is invested. And therefore, and it has a very long history, uh, as well as tremendous internal diversity. So dealing with about 3,000 uh, years of history of texts, various kinds of texts that are considered sacred in different contexts by different groups of people, and also to deal with the idea of how texts evolve historically, what makes a text scripture. So one of the in, uh, questions that I am hoping that the students at the end of, I'm hoping that the students will ask more questions at the end. And they will have uh, tools to question their own understanding of scripture. And that Hinduism provides a very good uh, locus to highlight this, that uh, traditions are internally diverse, texts evolve historically and have uh, much of their interpretations and their use depends on the context, as well as they are embedded in uh, cultures. These three presumptions with which we work is um, Hinduism gives a lot to highlight these themes. 
But at the same time, because of the absence of the founder and because most of the texts have been performative texts, orally transmitted, not just uh, uh, they are written, uh, the Vedas, you can find them in texts, but most of the time they were transmitted for thousands of years for uh, orally. So performance is the primary mode of transmission. And the, one of the questions that I hope that at the end of my uh, session the students will ask is what makes thing, uh, a text scripture? Is it where does the authority of the scripture lie? Is it in performance or is it in the text itself? Because it is all, um, so we begin in order to cover a large diversity of the texts which have different uh, foci and also used by different groups of people, we decided that for each section, for each session we are trying, we have tried to incorporate the historical factor, we have tried to incorporate the performative factor, and we have also tried to uh, incorporate the diversity factor. So that way, the students will see the text almost evolving in, their, in front of their eyes. And then at the end, they will be able to engage. That is our hope. And uh, one of what performance brings into uh, also into our conversations is that because performance allows individuals to make texts their own, so the sense of ownership also comes from performance. And they, there is a sense of multivalence, a multiplicity of meaning embedded within the performative nature of the text. So uh, the issue of religious with whom or in what is the religious authority and agency invested will become one of the central questions of our uh, session section. Uh, and uh, to give you a taste of what we are doing, it has, Hinduism has so many different texts, starting from Vedas, where, uh, which do not make any reference to any of the deities who are worshipped in various temples of Hinduism today. Uh, they are very different deities and we also have to, Hinduism is much misunderstood at times. Most, many people know when I teach my courses on Hinduism and ask in class what they know, the students know about Hinduism. They generally, uh, many of them know one, caste and the other cows. Other than that, most so it is also one of those uh, religions which is misconstrued in many ways, misunderstood, and to convey what makes things sacred for Hindus, those who identify as Hindus, is a challenge that we were facing. Uh, and because there is a diversity of texts, uh, we also had to find texts that are interlinked, even if they are diverse, they have some interlinking ideas or references that make them, uh, like they are put together because people can identify them as Hindu. 
Uh, the third and the final uh, and one final point I'll make before I show you what we are doing with uh, one of our sections. Uh, along with this issue of intertextuality, we are also trying to show in this that scriptures, as Professor Helisi pointed out, it's not a done deal in the Hindu uh, context. So many new gurus, for example, are uh, giving lectures and their lectures are being recorded and they are writing and then for their disciples that becomes a sacred text. So the idea of scripture as evolving, as being a work in progress is also something that we want to convey. And finally, I want to give you um, an overview of uh, one of the sessions, uh, this is kind of our favorite session, uh, it is on the epic Ramayana. So Ramayana is uh, one of uh, the two major epics that are considered uh, sacred by Hindus. And it's an ancient text, possibly written uh, in the early century. It was like complete by the early centuries of the common era, and it is the story of an ideal prince who was exiled from uh, his kingdom uh, just on the eve of his coronation. His wife went with him to the forest for 14 years, and while in forest, she was abducted by some uh, most Hindus would call him a demon, but some Hindus also, some communities also worship him. So that right there give him, give you a sense of diversity. And then when she's abducted, uh, this prince, with his help of his brother and some monkeys and uh, other animals, he rescues uh, her. But when she's rescued, there is this very uh, important incident. He, she is put through trial by fire. So if the uh, hero says that if you are pure, you have lived with another man, if you are pure, you have been pure, then you will have to walk through fire and the fire will not touch you. Now, this is a very controversial issue. She does, of course, go through the fire and she's not touched and she, her purity is proved. But this has been a very controversial incident within the epic. So not just for feminists now, many feminists are picking up this incident to discuss feminist issues in contemporary context, but in also traditional context as well. So uh, in 1987, a TV serial based on the Ramayana was uh, aired. And uh, in that one, when this incident came, it, they interpreted it using an, another interpretation from the 14th century, in which the interpretation is that uh, the one who was... So the interpretation, uh, just let me finish this, then you will be able to enjoy this more. Uh, this is, uh, uh, the interpretation is that the Sita who was abducted by this demon was really not real Sita. She was only an illusion that had been abducted. Uh, I'll just finish in a minute. Uh, so, um, 
so it was only an illusion and the real sita was actually given to uh, divine fire for protection and divine fire kept her in protection for all these years and when uh, she was uh, rescued the illusion sita goes back and actually fire fire god brings her back so that was the uh, interpretation used by the tv serial i'm not going to show you but then uh, in 2006 no 2010 uh, an american production of this by an american woman nina pelle uh, who Uh, has done a cartoon series of this and she comes uh, with the original question of how a woman has to be treated by a man and uh, she, her interpretation is that this is a story of a woman asking for equal treatment and that is so then by looking at various interpretations by hindus and by non hindus people will be able uh, the students will hopefully be able to ask questions about what forms a scripture who has the authority to interpret them and when a text or a narrative becomes scripture so hopefully that's all thank you so good evening everyone Uh, I'm keenly aware that the hour is late and I'm standing between you and dinner. So I will try to be uh, very brief. Also, I'm the last in the sequence, which is good and bad. It's bad because people may be worn out by then. Uh, it's good in the sense that I can take advantage of all that has come before me. So I have not yet taped anything. I have not yet uh, finalized anything. I've been scribbling notes the entire time, picking up, <laughs> st stealing good ideas from my colleagues. Right. So, uh, uh, so that's the advantage of coming, coming last in line. So I'd just like to focus briefly on what I intend to do, not what I have done. So I have done very little, although with my help of my TF mat, we put together eight, you know, eight sessions, which I think I'm going to revise half of them as a result of this evening. But in any case, we worked hard. But uh, it's clear to me what the main point of the Judaism section should be in the context of a series of courses on scripture, right? And the theme would be that the Hebrew Bible is not Judaism. Because most people out there think that the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, is Judaism. And a lot of Jews also think that the Hebrew Bible is Judaism. So I need to disabuse them of this and explain Hebrew Bible is Judaism only if you allow the text to be interpreted in any one of amazing, truly amazing and extraordinary ways, then the text thereby becomes Jewish. Although by the same logic, the text also can become Christian. And indeed, for Christians, it does. It does become Christian. So I, I, this, is, this I see as my theme, right? Focusing on uh, original historical context uh, versus what the text comes to mean. And my point is not to delegitimate, heaven forbid, anything. My point, rather, is to show this is a living religious culture. And a living religious culture, of course, things change over time, and texts receive new meanings and new interpretations. So one of my parade examples is, is the laws of the Sabbath, or the laws of Shabbat, which is the Hebrew word for uh, Sabbath. 
So as you know, in the Ten Commandments, in the fourth of the Ten Commandments, there is a commandment not to do any manner of work on the, seventh, on the Sabbath day, uh, not to do any manner of work. Unfortunately, the text is rather cryptic. I would say uh, if I were there at the desert at the time, I would have said to Moses, Moses, you need to spell this out a little bit more. It's really not at all clear what this means not to do any manner of work. How do you understand what work is? How do I know what, what is and what is not prohibited? So if you look elsewhere in the law, the Pentateuch, in the Torah, uh, there are a couple of clues scattered hither and thither about various activities that would be uh, prohibited by, uh, under this prohibition. Uh, the, most conspicuous, the most obvious and plain spoken of which is you shall not light a fire. Although later Jews will argue whether it means you should not light a fire or not let a fire to remain lit. Uh, they will argue about, about, that as, about that as well. In any case, so since the Torah is so spare with details, so what is a Jew to do? So here comes Friday afternoon at nightfall. It's the Sabbath, and well, I need to know what I can do and what I can't do in order, to vi in order not to violate the law. So lucky for us, uh, Judaism is uh, like Charles's categories. Uh, we have a dual canon, we have an open canon, Right, which is the main point we're going to get across. The dual canon is we have many texts that do focus on the interpretation of the Torah. So the Torah does function as a foundational document. Uh, I use the analogy of the American Constitution. The American Constitution is the foundation document of law, but you never look in the Constitution to find out whether any given activity is prohibited or mandated by law. One, of course, looks elsewhere. But it is a foundation document. Similarly, the Torah is a foundation document, but you don't look in the Torah to find out what to do or what not to do. Uh, that, of course, is the job of all the later interpreters and anthologizers and commentators and uh, lawgivers, etc. So the Torah has preeminence, but it is not the final word. It, in fact, is simply the first word. It's an open canon. So a, a major document in this open canon is the Mishnah, which is written in the second century of our era in Roman Palestina. Uh, where we do, in fact, have a clearly spelled out list of things that you may not do on the Sabbath day. Uh, and here it is before you, and if we had time, I would go through it and explain some of its obscurities. But uh, lucky for us all, it's late. So anyway, there are, as you see, there are 39, there we go, there are 39 labors uh, arranged in a, uh, uh, some of these may seem obvious as labors. Others, you and I would say, I don't quite understand what is so laborious about, about, about some of these. So our sages, living in, Ro in the Roman period, put together this list of 39. Now, if you look very carefully at the list, you'll see only four or five max can be thought to derive from the Torah itself. The other 34 are coming from, well... I don't know where they're coming from, but they're not coming from the Torah. They're coming from somebody's fertile brain uh, who are putting together a list of 39 activities that are, are prohibited on, on the Sabbath. So if you notice, the paragraphs are arranged more or less in terms of culture. That's the best way to understand this list. In terms of the creative acts of human culture are prohibited on the Sabbath. Things that humans do that, in fact, make them human are precisely the sorts of things that we may not do on the Sabbath day. So the first paragraph from number one through number 11 there's all the activities you need to bake bread. Since humans you know, cook food, bake food, animals, of course, just eat. But we, you, part of the human culture is creation of food, mastery of fire and food. So that's the first one through 11. And 12 through 24 
are the uh, creation of garments, because again, humans wear clothes. So it's part of the human culture is creating clothing. So clothing is everything you need to do from shearing the wool to tearing and stitching two stitches. It would be the second paragraph. Third paragraph, hunting a deer down to erasing in order to write two letters. This is writing. Everything you need to do to create parchment or to create, um, a, um, yes, pregnant, well, anyway, parchment uh, for, for writing. Then starting with 34, 35, we have a series of kind of, uh, I'm not sure what to call them, but they're single things. So building and tearing down, I understand. That's obviously a pair. Extinguishing and kindling fire, that I understand. Again, humans build, humans light fire, master fire. So those are the things that are prohibited on the Sabbath. Now, what's interesting to me is not simply that this is a new list, but that the conception behind the list is completely novel. There's not the least clue anywhere in the Torah, anywhere in the Hebrew Bible at all. There's no least bit hint that this, these should be our dominant conceptions by which we determine what is and what is not labor for purposes of the Sabbath. And then last of all, striking with a hammer, and then, then comes the most tricky one, taking out from one domain to another. I have no idea how to understand what that is. But in, in any case, I'm not sure yet how to explain this in a MOOC. <laughs> I know how to explain this standing up in front of a class and giving a lecture, because I do that every day, right? So that I know how to do. But how do I do this in a MOOC? But I'm not sure yet, but I'm sure my student TF Matt will figure it out. Right, <laughs> but that's why I pay him the big bucks. Right, right. Um, and then I want to go from here on and show how this is a living religious tradition. And at some point, we might want to call it Judaism. But what you got in the Hebrew Bible is not yet Judaism. It's the stuff out of which Judaism will emerge. It is the constitutional document upon which the edifice of Judaism is established. Thank you. Well, as is our way, uh, we went over time, uh, and we don't formally have time for questions. But I want to thank you all for coming. I hope you'll sign up for the courses. Please uh, explore what we've offered. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. Again, the courses will unfold uh, now pretty consistently twice a week. A uh, little bit of change up. There's Little, there's a week, I think, between Karen's course and my course. Um, but it's been a really, I just want to say publicly what an honor it's been to engage in this conversation with all of you and to try to think about these challenging questions of what it means to meaningfully, creatively, responsibly uh, promote these very challenging questions in a really wide audience. We have uh, 22,000 people that have currently signed up for the course, so we're Really, we're really talking about massive, massive numbers. But we're excited about it. And uh, again, it's been a real privilege to work together. And we thank you all for your support, especially the graduate students in the room. Thank you. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you. And um, let us know what you think about the courses as they, as they unfold. Thank you again.